listeners, welcome back. You are tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. I'm your host, Robert, and we got a great show tonight. We have a returning guest who's going to bring us up to speed on some recent racing events and auctions, and we're going to be playing some cool music tonight, actually tribute music to a uh, surprise artist. So, gentlemen, start your engines. When a motor's warm And she's purring sweet But let me warn ya You're on a one-way street She'll crowd your clothes Spin your wheels Then you're gonna know how it feels To spin out Spin out Better watch those curves Never let her steer If she can shake your nerves Boy, then she can strip your gears She'll get your heart going fast Then she'll let you run out of gas So spread out Spread out Flag you down, that's a goal. Scoot before you lose control. Let's bear down. To flag you down, that's a goal. Scoot before you lose control. Let's bear out. Let's bear out. Let me hear you spin out. Okay, if you uh, just tuned in, you're tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and uh, I've got our special guest with us tonight. His name's John Starkey. John? Hello, Robert. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So uh, so you've had some uh, fun fun excursions over the summer. Tell us, the last, you were on the show here about, uh, what, three months ago? About that, yeah, that's yeah. right. So uh, bring us up to speed on some of the events that you went to. I know you went to one shortly thereafter. Yep, I went over to Classic Le Mans in France and uh, had a very good time. It was Florida weather. Everybody was beaten into the ground. But they had something like, what, 400 entries, and the racing was spectacular. The crowds were heaving. Everything was great. After that, came back, went to Road America and watched the historic Can-Am race. That was also excellent and mm-hmm. well attended. And then just a couple of weeks ago, went to Monterey and did the week of uh, auctions, races, Pebble Beach concours, and just generally carred out. Okay, well, we'll save the best for last. So let's go into the uh, Classic Le Mans. Tell us a little bit about that, the history of the Classic Le Mans, Mm. the type of cars that were there, how long is that event, for example? 
Um, it, it literally is 24 hours. Is it really? Yeah, it is. They have, um, they have six what they call plateau, which are grids, if you like, of cars. So they start from 1923 and they run up to 1979 divided by six. And each grid has got, say, 60 cars that they start with. And you get uh, three – each grid gets three 40-minute races. So you get two races in the daytime and one race at night. Really? So Okay, so they don't start all the cars at the same time. No. They break them up into years and classes, yep. correct? Yep. That's right. But it's a continuous thing for 24 yep. hours. For 24 hours, it's nonstop racing. Oh, interesting. So in other words, excuse me, <coughs> so a certain class of cars, a certain group of cars, let's say like the early cars, let's say, mm-hmm. you said what, the 20s and 30s, yep. for example? Yep. So those cars will run for two hours. No, they'll run for 40 minutes. Oh, 40 minutes. Yep. And then, so they're from, say, 1923 to 29, mm-hmm. that bunch will run for 40 minutes. And then there's a 10-minute break. And then they get, while they get together, the next lot, which will be from, say, 1930 to 1938. Mm-hmm. And it runs like that continuously for 24 hours. Oh, that's great. So they run six 40-minute races in the day and then six 40-minute races through the night. Then it's daytime again, six more 40-minute 40, 40 races, and that's it. So now in each, in, in each one of these little races, do they have one driver just runs for the 40-minute run? Because like in Le Mans, um, normal, you know, they break it up in three drivers can, or four drivers. You can have, uh, in that 40-minute race, you can have one or two drivers. You're, you have to do a pit stop in the 40 minutes. Okay, you have to do a pit stop. Yeah, you have okay. to come to a stop and... Do they provide you? Are you allowed to, like, you know, in vintage racing, for example, if you do some of the venues, you know, we have to be, the driver has to be, you know, if there's two drivers, it's like an endurance deal. We have to double up as a driver and as the pit crew and everything like that. Do they do that there, too? No, you've got your own. You've got your own crew. You've got your own crew, yes. Okay, so these are pretty much like professional collectors and and teams that that come there full-blown, just like a regular racing team. Yep. In fact, I should imagine... I'll make a guess at it. I would think the money's worth of cars there in the classic Le Mans might even exceed the modern Le Mans 24 hours. No kidding. Yeah. I mean, multiple Porsche 917s, Ferrari 512s, Ferrari 250 GTOs. I mean, everything you can think of is there. The, the first, interestingly, the first, first two races, the slow cars, mm-hmm. they actually allow people to run across the track and jump into the cars for the start. Oh, like the old, uh, yeah. what they call it, Le Mans Start. Absolutely. That's what it used to be. Oh, that's yeah. great. Yeah, yeah, yeah was... if you noticed at the beginning of the show, I said, gentlemen, start your engines. <laughs> and that's kind of what they did back in the old days. They did it at Sebring, Daytona, yep, and in uh, Europe. It was very common, yeah, yeah. the Le Mans Start, where you started one side of the track, ran to the other side, got in your car. Yep. And uh, interesting. Um the uh, so how new of vehicles were at these can participate? What's the cutoff here? Nineteen seventy nine. Seventy nine. Yeah. Okay. So the last cars are the last. I mean, the last two grids are very fast. You've mm-hmm. got things like Porsche nine seventeens in Plateau five, and then you've got up to seventy nine. So you've got nine thirty fives, nine thirty sixes, Porsches, and so they would have the nine thirty sixes already by then. Yeah. And the 950, well, 956? No, 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 that would, that would come out 1881, yeah. Yeah, okay. So they, they've cut it off before the Group C. And then in terms of Ferrari, what did they run? What was the car they had? Um, Ferraris are running mainly in the... They had the, like the BB512 modified car yes, back then? Yes, 512 modified stuff. That's in the Group 5 with the Porsche 917s. And mm-hmm. then I think the grid before that, you've got things like D-type Jaguars and you've got... Ferrari 375s and all that sort of stuff. Now, in, in, in the regular Le Mans, they have big bore cars, medium bore cars, and small bore cars. They all run in the 24-hour race, right? Yes. So yes. now, how do they do this? Did they just run it based on displacement? In other words, like, 
even though it was a newer car, let's say the period between, let's just say, 65 to 70, for example, mm-hmm. what if you had some small bore cars in with the big bore cars, mm-hmm. or what if they split the split that set that group up? They, although you're in, if you take each grid of sort of 60 cars, mm-hmm. then the slower cars, the GT cars, if you like, right. um, are put into a separate category from the sports racing and sports prototype stuff. Okay. So you've got a chance of winning your class in your okay. individual races. But they would have raced in the same the same race, the actual same 40-minute race. Absolutely. Okay, yes. so if it had been like an original race then, yep. basically you were just broken out in your you know, two-liter class, over two-liter, under two-liter, yeah. prototype, GT, GTP. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what was the what was the what was the uh, I mean I'm sure there were some very very unusual cars there. What would have been well, what caught your eye? What was the most stunning car that you saw there? Wow, what was the most stunning car you take me about, Robert? Um, I mean, unusual. You know, just something really, really well, just race well, car. Well, okay, uh, Americana. Um, there were. I don't even know what it was, but it was a early seventies car, and it was in the next pit to us, and it was a huge Chrysler, and nice. I believe it was run by Herschel McGriff. And I mean, it, it had something like a seven and a half, eight liter engine in it, 454 as it were. The crowds loved it, absolutely loved it. Really? Was this like a KM style car? I mean, no, like a no, uh, GT no, style was, car? No, it was a NASCAR. It was a NASCAR? It was a NASCAR, and it had actually run at Le Mans in the early 70s. That's interesting you mentioned that because um, Holman and Moody pulled out of racing in 1973, one of the last cars that they raced. And there's a gentleman. Do you know Gene Felton out of... Uh, I know Gene, Okay. Yes. Gene had Lovely this car, girl. and I yeah. almost bought it. I tried to make a deal with him, but it was too much money at the time. But it was a 73 flat-nosed Torino that was purpose-built for Daytona, and I believe the car ran Sebring, and I believe the car also ran at Le Mans. So I didn't know until... I mean, I guess I just never noticed, but I didn't really realize that 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 the United States actually entered cars like that. So these are so that car that you're talking about, that Chrysler, yeah. Yeah. could have been uh, like a NASCAR version of a Charger or a Roadrunner. That, 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 that I think is exactly what it was like. I mean, it was all welded; the doors were welded shut, huge roll cage. All that, interesting. You know. Oh yeah, it, was, it didn't do too badly. Unfortunately, the clutch let it down in the in the second race. I think. Yeah. Huh. There was also. Um, there was also a wonderful 427 uh, Corvette. Corvette? Yeah, from about 1968, 69. Mm-hmm. And I was told that it had run Le Mans in period six times. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. I, I think uh, was that the one with the American flag planted? There was a whole bunch of them. Yeah. I can't remember the guys that raced <laughs> uh, those Greenwood. cars. John Greenwood. Greenwood? Yeah, John Greenwood had those with the American flag stuck on it. Spirit of 76 and all that sort of stuff. Okay. Yeah. Um, but I'm not sure if he raced... Didn't he race 73, 74? Was he? That was in his early days, wasn't it, really? Yeah. I think he raced at Le Mans. I think he did race at Le Mans in 75. He might have. Yeah, because I remember here at Daytona, his cars always had that he enormous bodywork. Yeah. And, but the cars that raced in the, the C3 body styles, what they refer to it as, which is the right. 60, 68, 69, yep. 68 to 72, really, but they went on to 79 mm-hmm. or 82 body style. But the 67. 68, 69, 70, 71 cars usually didn't have a lot of bodywork on them. Mm-hmm. That was something that Greenwood came out with later, and then it was, cars, it was mimicked. Yeah. And again, I, the, the driver escapes me who raced that car because, you know, those little die-cast models that you get? Yep. Okay, there's a couple versions of that, and the one that you're probably referring to, they made a scale version of that. It's like a 132nd scale, and uh, 
Darn, I can't remember that. But uh, okay, so what other cars were there? Uh, what other cars were there? Well, I'm sure there was AC Cobras and GT40s. There were AC Cobras and GT40s. Uh-huh. Yeah, there were Lola T70s and there were Ferrari P3s, P4s. Any uh, okay? So in '68, '69, they, they ran the three twelve, okay. the P three twelves, right? <laughs> okay, you asked me what the, 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 the oddest one there. Yeah, um, was a um, uh, a mini, um, but it was one of those little streamlined jobs. Age has got me. I can't think of the name of it. A mini Cooper? Well, yes, but a, but um, a, a streamlined one, as it were, like a, a purpose built car for yeah, the race. Purpose built, not mini Marcos. That's oh, a Mini it. Marcos. Yes, okay, a Mini Marcos there. Okay, yeah, those are fiberglass bodied cars. Yes, with uh, they were built by Marcos. I think Morris, yeah, Marcos. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, uh, they were they were the poor little thing was so slow. I mean, it was just he was one and a half minutes slower in the lap. I remember reading an article a long time ago when I was overseas, and it was about the Prince Prince Charles of England. Yeah, one of the first cars he received <laughs> when he got his driver's license. He was it was a was a Marcos. But there was two versions of it. There was the mini one, the little short yeah. one. Then there was the one that was a little bit bigger that looked yeah. like a uh, Renault Alpina. Yes, absolutely. And they were made of wood. Wood? They, yeah, they're made of wood. They're made of plywood and balsa wood bonded. That's the chassis. I kid you not. Yeah. Really? Yeah. I'm stunned. I know. Most people are. <laughs> and they race that. Yeah, I think they've all died of woodworm now. <laughs> <laughs> huh. Okay, we got to take a break here just for a second. Um I want to mention one of our sponsors, and that's Krabby's Beach Rock Bar and Grill, located on Clearwater Beach at 727-210-0988. They're right there on Clearwater Beach, across from the main drag. And uh, they've got two stories of food, drink, and fun. They're open from morning till 1 a.m., daily specials and entertainment. That's Krabby's Beach Rock Bar and Grill, 727-210-0988. So uh, go visit my friends, Turtle, Polly, Eddie, and all the girls and staff at Krabby's Beach Rock Bar and Grill. At 727-210-0988. Tell them Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Car Central, and they might give you a free beverage. Be sure to do that. What do we got queued up, Lee? Got uh, Viva Las Vegas by, uh, uh, you know, a young, unknown singer. Hopefully uh, he's going to do really well. <laughs> well, let's, let's, let's listen to this guy. Let's check him out. Bright light city, gonna set my soul, gonna set my soul on fire. Got a whole lot of money that's ready to burn, so get those stakes up higher. There's a thousand pretty women waiting out there. They're all living the devil may care. And I am just a devil with love to spare. So Viva Las Vegas. Viva Las Vegas. How I wish that there were more than 24 hours in the day Even if there were 40 more, I wouldn't sleep a minute away Oh, there's blackjack and poker and the roulette wheel A fortune won and lost on every deal All you need is strong heart and a nerve steel Viva Las Vegas Viva Las Vegas Las Vegas with your neon flashing and your one-arm bandits crashing all those homes down the drain. Fever, Las Vegas turning day into nighttime, turning night into daytime. If you see it once, you'll never be the same again. I'm gonna keep on the run, I'm gonna have me some fun. It cost me my very last dime. 
If I wind up broke, well, I'll always remember that I had a swing in time. I'm gonna give it everything I've got. Lady luck, please let the dice stay hot. Let me shoot a seven with every shot. Viva Las Vegas! Viva Las Vegas! Viva! All right, we're we're back. Back to uh, in case you just tuned in, this is Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and I've got my special guest here, John Starkey, uh, vintage racer, car uh, collector extraordinaire, uh, book author. So we're going to get into some of this stuff too. But we were just talking about this uh, song, "Viva Las Vegas," mm-hmm. and uh, in the movie spinout, Elvis drove an Elvis an Elva Courier, if I remember correctly. <laughs> I'm not sure what motor was in it, but I do remember that because I saw the movie when it came out in '64 because I was just a little kid back then. However, like I mentioned to you during the break, that car I actually saw. Somebody had managed to get that car, collect that car, preserve that car. It was at Laguna Seca in 1997 when I was there for the um, Pebble Beach and the Laguna Seca races. So interesting history on those cars. And, and that car is kind of a very sought-after small-bore car that they, you know, was very yep. popular in racing back then. By, by the way, was one any of those at the, the uh, Classic Le Mans? Uh, I didn't see an Elva Courier at Classic Le Mans, but there was an Elva Mark VI um, GT, which was a mid-engine thing, uh-huh. and it was quite successful. That's a coupe, though, isn't it? That's a coupe, yeah. Right. But the Courier, uh, that's interesting, because um, just last week at Laguna Seco, or maybe the week before now, um, there was an Elva Courier there. Maybe it was the one that you saw. Really? And, uh, yeah, and they had just had this great photograph of the Elva works in England in about 1963 when the car was made, with all the staff outside clustered around this car. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's just just a really nice thing to see because <coughs> those because those those companies were so small. You had Elva and Chevron and Lola, and uh, I mean, and Chev- yeah, right. So in other words, these were just they were just building. Those are purpose built cars back in the 60s. Yeah. And they just and they catered strictly to racers, and they basically built the chassis and the bodies, and then you would come along as a privateer and put whatever engine that was available. You could yep. have ran. Yep. Most of the time, they were just uh, inline four cylinders, right? Is what most for, people use. For used. Elva, yes, that's right. But I mean, the courier was Elva's go at trying to break out of the race market and sell to the guy in the street, as it were. Oh, the courier was really. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it made its name through racing, but it was also a very streetable car. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that because I don't think I've ever seen one that was street legal. But I do know they made some Elva Porsches and they ran three fifty six or you know three fifty six nine twelve box motors. That's right. They did, didn't they? Saw and, one of those at Laguna as well. Did you know? Well, you knew Ken Prendergast, Tampa, right? Do you mean Joe Pendergast? Joe, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, Joe. Okay. He When I first met him in the late 70s when he used to hang out with Dave White and those mm-hmm. guys over mm-hmm. there, he had one. And uh, and I thought it was a bizarre car. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, you know, when you're used to high horsepower cars, you know, muscle cars and mm-hmm. big V8s and stuff and 911s, I was used to big stuff. It was hard for me to conceive that these little cars could be that fast. Well, when I started going to the vintage races in the late 70s, early 80s, I would see these small-bore cars. And, I mean, Bob Akins was driving them. Archie Archioli was driving them. Uh, guys like you were driving them. Uh, Joe was driving them. Just a ton of guys um, were driving those kind of cars. And they were just scooting along the radio, the track. And they were extremely competitive because they didn't have to hit the brakes. They just handled so well. Yeah, so they, they could go full speed almost the whole course at Seaming or Daytona. They were very light as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the power wasn't that 
didn't really matter. The first car that I ever raced seriously was an Elva BMW, uh, a Mark 7, and they used to do hill climbs in England with it, shared it with a friend who actually owned the car, and the fool asked me to drive it with him. So that was really good fun. Was that a coupe too? No. That, that was, was an open, open car? That was an open uh, two-litre with a BMW M12 engine in it. But it M12? Was it an M12? No, it wouldn't be. Would well, it? a four-cylinder, like it a 2002 four- engine? Yeah, but late sixties. The M twelve was the two liter, but I think the but this was a one point six liter. Oh, they had a one six too. They had one yeah. six, a one eight, and a two liter back then. Yeah, and it it was a very fast car. Oh, mm. well, they're lights, like you said. You know, they don't weigh in. So, what's hill climbing like? What's hill climbing like? Um, well, it only lasts about a thousand yards. So, I worked out once. I worked out once that a weekend's motorsport in hill climbing, you got four minutes of track time. Four minutes. Four minutes. Yes, you got. So you just got to haul butt up the hill, and yeah. that's yeah. it. Yep, that's it. Just, just one. It's one direction. It's just one way, right? Yeah, but in, in in England at that time, well, now even the hill climbs are only about a thousand yards long. So it's a real blast, and forty five seconds later, it's over. But in Europe, they have like twenty three mile mountain climbs. So they're pretty serious over there. Oh, yeah. Like, I think they have one down in Austria. It's called at the Grossglockner. Yeah, <laughs> that's the and, one. And uh, yeah. that one's real scary. Yeah. I mean, you can drive. That's a normal road. But, I mean, I'd, I'd hate to have the hill climb. I can't fathom Pikes Peak when I see that on TV. Yeah. Have you ever been there? Or? No, I've seen I've, I've looked at it and thought, oh, my God. It looks pretty scary. It does, doesn't it? All right, it's tell it, us about Monterey a little bit. How was oh, Monterey? Um, Laguna Seca there. Ten, That's the... ten years ago, I swore I would never go back to Monterey ever again. I'd been about three or four times. And uh-huh. um, the traffic, darling, and the people, I mean, it's all too much, isn't it? I mean, you just the world descends on Monterey Peninsula for that weekend. Oh, yeah, you can't move. It's you a parking lot. move. It took on Saturday morning, I went to Laguna Seca, and it took me an hour and a half to do 14 miles. So, um, yes. Uh, but apart from that, it was a great weekend. There's no doubt about it. I had good company. And so what was the featured mark this year was what? It was uh, Alfa Romeo. Alfa Romeo, okay. Yeah. Was it some real interesting nostalgic? There's some very interesting nostalgic stuff there. Yeah, there was... Um, Alfa Romeo-wise, what was some of the... What was the most was. outstanding car? Well, the, the, I mean, there's all these Monzas and two three hundreds from before the war, which are worth, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, ten million, you name it. It's there. Unbelievable. All that stuff. But there was a very interesting one there that I'd never seen before, though I read about it years ago. It was a twin-engine car. It wasn't the B-Motori, which had an engine in the front and an engine in the back. This had two engines and gearboxes side by side. Really? Yeah. It, it must have been about 1937, I should think, an open two-seater. And the gearboxes were coupled together so that when you shifted, both gearboxes shifted together. They were side by side. Side by side with a cross shaft from the gear lever. That's extremely interesting. Yeah, it is, isn't it? So in other words, it had a motor and a transmission for each rear wheel. Yes. Basically. Absolutely. If I understand you correctly. That, no, you're absolutely right. So and a drive shaft went from each gearbox to the back. Well, that was certainly experimental. Yeah, I should think so. Jeez. Uh, so how'd that work out? Well, it was two straight, two twin cam straight eights. Mm-hmm. Um, what, 3.4, 3.5 each, I suppose. So, I mean, that's a lot of size. I, th- I think nearly all those monsters that I've ever read about, they they had the power, but of course they didn't have the grip in those days with those dreadful tires. tires. And yeah, they were hard. And, and of course the car was also then heavy with the two engines and transmission. Well, that's a fairly big car, too. They're fairly yeah. big and long. Yeah. So I don't think the whole thing worked out at all. So it was hmm. an experiment, and they thought, well, forget that one then. Interesting. And, yeah, and there was a beaut- there were several beautiful um, nineteen anything from nineteen sixties, seventies stuff. 
uh, Alpha T thirty threes. I love those. I just I think they're beautiful things. What about late fifties, early six? Well, let's say you know most people can kind of identify with let's say from sixty threes, four, five, six because yeah. that's that in the late fifties is kind of when the United States kind of came on to yeah. play. So. You know, like the Cunninghams, yeah. the Scarabs. Yeah. By the way, Scarabs, you said that John Morton was out there and he had an accident? Yes, he did. He Poor, poor guy. It wasn't his fault. I saw the video. He um, he got hit by a car that, sp- that went off and came back spinning and hit him in the side. And he went end over end. But uh, he went to hospital, but I believe they've let him out. He's okay. okay. John Morton used to drive for Carroll Shelby and BRE Dotson for Brock Racing Enterprises back in the day. They were good friends. I met John Morton. Matter of fact, in 1997 when we were at the... Uh, um, Monterey Historics, because Shelby was the featured mark that year. Yeah, well, he went on to drive those Nissan GTP cars. Then he went, yeah, exactly. Super driver. Yeah, had a good reputation. Yeah. Oh, poor guy. I mean, he just went for a terrible ride. It wasn't, <laughs> wasn't his fault. So, uh, but uh, I believe the car came back in two pieces. The car came back in two. His car, the Scarab. Scarab. Oh, they're extremely rare. They only made what a handful of those? Five or six. Yeah. Yeah. And that was what, Reventlow was the one that uh, designed yeah, that's, this? Yeah, Reventlow was behind it, wasn't it, with his mom's money? Mm-hmm. Helps to be born rich. Oh, yeah, well, it does, you know. I mean, uh, and, then, and then when if you put it to good use, too, you know, I mean, that's uh, a worthwhile cause. You know, racing, of course, you know. Better than putting it up your nose like uh, some dodos do. But, uh, hey, Lee, what do we got, kid? Oh, hang on. Let me get, uh, I'll mention one more. I'll be okay here. I'll mention another one of our sponsors here. Um, Kotakis Towing. Kotakis Towing, yes, good friends of ours. Located at 1141 Court Street in Clearwater, 727-447-1952. If you need long distance, short distance, or any distance towing, call my friends Lefty and Joey at Kotakis Towing in Clearwater, 727-447-1952. How are we doing? What do we got queued up next? This is Speedway by that same uh, young uh, rockabilly guy. Oh, cool. Yeah, he sounded pretty good the last time. Let's see what this one sounds like. Has it got something to do with racing? Cool.
Okay, that was Elvis Presley and the theme song of Speedway. Matter of fact, during the break, John and I were just talking, because you're kind of an Elvis fan, but tell us, you, you kind of have a little background history on him. Back. Yeah, well, okay, here we go. When I was 13 years old in England, and uh, my mom was an opera singer um, part-time, and uh, I heard on the radio, Radio Luxembourg, because... Because we only had the BBC, and they talked like that all the time, you see. And they mm. played classical music and opera and good music for good people. I see. And, 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 absolutely. And then, so Radio Luxembourg was, well, I don't even know where it was. I presume it was in Luxembourg because the signal kept fading in and out. Mm-hmm. And they would have avant-garde music of the day on. So in 1957, along comes this gink from America called Elvis Presley. Well, I mean, we'd never heard a name like that for a start. Uh-huh. First record I heard was Heartbreak Hotel. Well, it just was like a sledgehammer between the eyes, that was. It was like, where did this guy come from? It set me off to searching around old records, well, not new record shops there, looking for all the blues stuff that Presley said he came from. And, just, and Elvis, of course, started in Sun Studios in Memphis, and Sam Phillips was the producer, and all that early stuff, I think, is just absolutely classic. I sort of 1959, 1960, he'd just uh-huh. gone off, hadn't he? Well, let me ask you this now. <laughs> on that Radio Luxembourg station, did yeah. you pick up a lot of bluesy stuff back oh, in those days? Yeah, they had... They had um, oh, the other the other thing that they had, the other person they had on was Chuck Berry. Oh, Chuck Berry. Yeah. I mean, again, it was like being hit between the eyes. You've never heard anything like that. And who else was on? Memphis Slim, Buddy Guy, uh-huh. those people... But you couldn't you couldn't get this stuff except by you know hiding under the bed covers and listening to the to your little radio with this terrible signal coming through. But it was just great. Were the records available back then? The records were available. In fact, that was that was just about the time that Elvis broke in Britain about 1957, and you know, Heartbreak mm-hmm. Hotel. I don't know where it went in the charts in Britain, but it must have gotten to number th- number two or number three, I should think. I don't know, Lee. Are you listening at all to any of this? Are you a big Elvis fan? I like his old stuff. I like the stuff from the fifties, like like what you were talking about. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do, do you have any background history on him too? I mean, do you, do... oh, I read books about Elvis, what, but not that I remember much of it. What, Did he what do a it? lot of bluesy stuff before he got into the regular rock and roll stuff? Um, I mean, when he first started he, out, because he's from Tupelo, Mississippi, right? That's yeah. where he's from originally. He he was busy doing country stuff. Oh, really? But, yeah. That, but but he took a bunch of country songs and. The band basically jazzed them up and made them rock and roll. That, uh-huh. was, that was really what happened. It was because he had Scotty Moore, the guitarist, and Bill Black, the guitar, the bass player behind him. Uh-huh. Scotty Moore was just fantastic. I mean, you know, another Chet Atkins, really. No and kidding. Li- wow, you listen to that style, finger-picking style. Boy, he was good. So back in the day, I mean, like you said, we had Chuck Berry. Who else was around back then? Do you remember, Lee? That was like right about that time. Of course, Elvis... Being that he, who he was, I mean, they just basically took him and commercialized him. You know, I mean, he he went on to he, the, he was he was drawing huge crowds. I mean, he was a really good live performer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The girls were going nuts, and then Colonel Tom Parker uh, saw what was happening, and uh, you know, uh, co- commercialized or promoted the heck out of him. Yeah, but who's who's the million uh, million dollar quartet? You know, Johnny Cash and mm-hmm. Jerry Lee Lewis and uh, the Blue Suede Shoes guy Carl Perkins, yep. and so Elvis was. Well, he he had his peers, right? Who mm-hmm. were kind of doing the same thing at the same time, except Elvis just uh, just uh, blew them all away as far as Completely. record sales. Yeah, left everybody else in the shadows. I don't know. You know, when I was a kid, you know, I mean, like in the 60s, you know, they'd show these old Elvis 
Kevin, I, I never, I was too young during the 50s to know who Elvis was. But when I saw him on the television screen, I said, you know, he's got a sneer in his, in his, and his hair's all greasy, and I don't get, I don't get this at all. I don't, I don't get the appeal, you know. I think, I think he was. Uh, I think he had to be a member of the opposite sex to figure that one <laughs> maybe, out. Maybe, you know? maybe that was a problem. <laughs> he was described to me once by a girl, by a girlfriend as a full-blooded frontal sexual assault. <laughs> yeah, and of course, by that time it was tame. By the yeah. time that I was around, I was like, okay, there's nothing special about this. I, it's a little. You know, gratuitous <laughs> with like the hip gyrations and all that stuff. <laughs> well, he had, wasn't the, there was certainly the, one of the first national television shows that he went on. He was only allowed to go on it as long as he didn't wiggle his hips. Or they mm-hmm. filmed them from like the but chest up, it. yeah, yeah right. chest up or something, yeah. <laughs> so, so I guess it's very sexually suggestive and sort of breaking the ground in the in the uh, in, in the white music uh, genre. Right? Well, perhaps if you were a thirteen-year-old girl living in Memphis in those days, a white girl, it was like wow. Yeah, Southern Baptist, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and and apparently the music was good. He used to sneak over to what Mississippi and watch watch uh, black. Go to black R and B clubs or whatever they called them, you know, where, the, where yeah. there, there was I th- I I think it was called R and B at the time. Yeah, real bluesy stuff. But but I think that's that's where he picked up a lot of his mm-hmm. stuff from is watching them, you know, let loose, listening to them, you know. So, so you know, so much of our music is inspired by. It's probably a combination of white folk music and and uh, all kinds of black music. Mm-hmm. And this is so they've really influenced us all, and now we're at rap. So we've reached a real, you know, pinna- come full, come full circle in, in <laughs> cultural <laughs> achievement. Yeah, uh, we'll stay away from that one. But uh, but yeah, you know, it's funny, and a lot of those, like even some of the songs we played on past shows, you know, they were bluesy songs that you know, like the animals. You know, they took them, yeah. they were influenced by them, and yeah. they just kind of modified them a little bit. The Doors did the same thing. So a lot of bands did that, you know. I mean, so. if, you, if you look at the Beatles, where did the Beatles, the Beatles come from? The Beatles were inspired by people like Chuck Berry and Elvis Presley. That, mm-hmm. that, you know, when mm-hmm. they were going to school, Buddy that Holly. was the stuff. Buddy Elvis Holly. was a Absolutely. huge influence on the Beatles and, and yeah. the Rolling Stones, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, and, and, although they didn't, didn't want to admit it so much. And actually, you, you, you've hit on something that Buddy Holly, I'd forgotten to mention him, he was inspiring as well. And I mean, it, I'm thinking about it... Uh, you know, sort of th- age 13 and 14 when that stuff all came out. Buddy Holly, amongst myself and my friends, probably was bigger than Elvis. We liked him better than Elvis. So he, I was 14 when he died, and I wore a black armband to school. No kidding. I did indeed, yeah. Well, and and you, so you were, um, how were you hearing this music? Was, was it played there was, there was a radio station called Radio Luxembourg. And, oh, and um, that's yeah. So I was just telling Robert that you couldn't get this stuff on on the BBC radio because mm-hmm. they were terribly, terribly, and they didn't play bad music. And yeah. So I, I mean, just <laughs> and Radio Luxembourg was was, Luxembourg. was American. Was that American uh, armed forces it, it, or it, American it, propaganda? Or it something? could have. It could have been. I mean, obviously, it came out of Luxembourg, but it had British and American DJs on it, and they were playing all that sort of stuff that was just. Well, when you think about it, there were all these bands, and I mean old-fashioned bands, of sort of brass bands and things like that. Uh-huh. And then all these new people came along and just threw them overboard, just changed the whole thing. I remember, and, and like I'll read about, um, like the Rolling Stones, for example, when they would hear Elvis, or, or these British musicians, when they would hear Elvis, or uh, American blues, or uh, the early American white rock and roll guys, 
it just, like you said, it just totally electrified them, blew them away. They said, what is this? I, you know, I, I want to be part of this or I want to hear more of this. It, it really moved them. And uh, so I don't quite understand that for the 50s stuff, but I understand how uh, that happened to me in the 60s when mm-hmm. I heard the Beatles and Led Zeppelin and the British bands who had were recycling it back to us. That's because you're a youngster. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, when you're, I don't know, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, I mean, music uh, really has a powerful impact on it. Oh, yeah. Enormous. Enormous. Yeah, that's right. Hey, I'm going to do a quick ad here again. Uh, This is for Bro's Pizzeria. Bro's Pizzeria voted number one in Clearwater, 727-441-6025. They have pizza pies, pizza by the slice, lasagna, spaghetti, ziti, Subs, hoagies, beer, wine, and pop, even dessert. So make a date and go visit my friends, Fred and Olty, at uh, Bro's Pizzeria in downtown Clearwater, 727-441-6025. Hey, what else we got queued up on uh, the Elvis? This is another one by the by this Presley fella. Presley fella, Whoever huh? It's called King Creole. So. Oh. This is no one for New Orleans. This, I like this song. This is the early stuff. He goes by the name of King Creole. You know he's gone, gone, gone. Jumping like catfish on a pole. You know he's gone, gone, gone. And a hip shaking King Creole. When the king starts to do it, it's as good as done. He holds his skin tall like a tummy gun. He starts to growl without in his throat. He bends a string and that's all she wrote. You know he's gone, gone, gone. Jumping like a catfish on the pole. You know he's gone, gone, gone. And a pack of chicken wheel grill. He sings a song about a crowd at home. He sings a song about a jelly roll. He sings a song about a pork and greens. He sings some blues about a New Orleans. You know it's gone, gone, gone. Jumping like a catfish on a pole. Yeah. You know it's gone, gone, gone. And the chicken king Something sweet, no matter how he plays, you gotta get up on your feet. And when he gets a rockin' fever, baby, heaven sinks. He don't stop playing till his guitar breaks. You know he's gone, 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 jumping like a catfish on the pole. Yeah, you know he's gone, 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 and a him chicken king real. Okay, we're back, and if you just tuned in, you're tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and we've got our special guest with us, uh, John Starkey, and our production manager, Lee, over there. We were just talking about music, musicians, and uh, a little bit of Elvis Presley, a little history. In fact, I just asked John during the break a minute ago, how many rock band guys do you know of that are into the vintage car thing and the vintage racing thing? Um, well, actually, I can think of three people that I met. Did you did you've crossed paths with, yeah. Yeah, um, who've got, you know, Really nice cars. Chris Rear, that was the guy. I was Chris Rear? Yeah, Chris Rear is a big uh, race car fan and races himself in a Lotus Super 7. What was his famous song, Leo? Do you know? Chris Rear? Remember him? He did one back in the. Uh, Chris Rear. Is it R R E A? Yeah. 
H E A or something? Don't, no, just R E A. Okay, well, he's. I can find him. Okay. okay. He, he did quite well and uh, he spent the money on race cars. Good. And, Good for him. Um, so did, uh, well, of course, uh, Brian Johnson, AC. Oh, yeah, Brian Johnson, of course, yeah. ACDC right here in Sarasota. <laughs> yeah, he's got, he's, he's a very good driver. Mm-hmm. And, um, who else? Uh, Eric Clapton. Eric Clapton, uh, really? Eric, yeah, Eric Clapton's, uh, he's no slow hand in a car, I can tell you. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> he's, all right. he's got some nice Ferraris. Well, he did have, I don't know if he still has them. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, so music, music and cars do seem to go together simultaneously. Yeah, in England there was a there was a jazz trumpeter called Chris Barber, and uh, during the sixties he ran a uh, he actually ran a race team of sports cars, and he had some pretty good drivers driving for him. Uh huh. So I mean, playing a trumpet obviously made money. Good. Did you find him? Chris Rhea, yeah. Um, let's see. He's got hits like uh, "Fool." If you think it's over on the beach, on the beach, that was his most notable one. That's yeah, what, yeah that okay. was a good song. Oh yeah, here's an old record. I don't think Chris Rhea hit it real big over here, so we don't know much about him. Is he English? Yeah. Oh, oh yeah, he's a Geordie. He comes from the same part of the world as Brian Johnson. Oh really? Mm. And you were saying you mentioned Ten CC. Oh, and Ten CC. Yeah, Eric Stewart, the, the band Ten CC. They had a Ferrari too. Who's who's uh, Brian Johnson? A uh, lead singer of ACDC. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, he lives right here in Sarasota. Yeah. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. yeah. He's, a Ma- very, he's a very good race driver. Matter of fact, there's a little group of guys that we hang out with. Maybe we can get Brian Johnson to come on the air, because I hear he does some stuff that he'd be cool to have on. And <laughs> talk, about his, yeah. talk about his cars. <laughs> and we'd have to watch his language, though, because he's a little bit open with loose with his language. Have you, nice have, guy, though. Have you read his book? No. It's, it's brilliant. Really? Yes, it's his autobiography, literally. Is it? Just so funny. I laughed at every page. <laughs> he's just great at telling stories about the cars he's had. Huh. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your books. Now, I know you wrote some books over the years. Oh, okay. Yeah, wrote these tomes about um, – uh, first one I've got here in my hand is a thing called from RTG22 about racing Porsches, 911s and 930s. Uh, wrote another one on um, Lola's sports prototypes and Can-Am cars. Wow, that's a nice looking and, car in uh, front of that. That's a 270 right there, isn't it? That's a 270, yep. Uh-huh. Wonderful things. Yep. What is this one? That's a Lola B08 something something. So um, that would have been like within the last, last five, ten years, right? Last two years. Two yeah, years? Okay. 2008. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they're doing well at the moment. They won the race at Road America this last weekend at LMS. You know, when you look at the lines on that on that 270, you know, it's timeless. Yes. I mean, it's just, when I look at that car, I think that, the GT, Ford GT40, yeah. obviously. Yeah. Um, and the uh, 908 Porsche. Yeah, that was a Just good. stunning lines on those cars. Yeah. And, they're, and the Ferrari, the P, P4. P4. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were beautiful, weren't they? And then, did Maserati have anything competitive back then? Or were they out by then? They were out by 1958. Okay, yeah, I was going to yeah. say they, the Ferraris, the Fiat, the Alphas, they were real yeah. dominant. Yeah. Post-war, pre-war, and then up to the mid-50s. That's right. And then poor old Maserati got a real pasting, just failed financially. Mm-hmm. And then, because Ferrari had bought them, haven't they? Ferrari owned them now. Uh, or is it Fiat owned them? Well, I, you know, there's, uh, there's a, we need cal- clarification on that. <laughs> so I, I, in in 69 and a half, yeah. mid-years when Ferrari sold out... To Fiat, Fiat. but yep. Fiat supposedly was controlled by the Italian government to some extent. I thought it was a private firm. Um, well, that's Agnelli family. Is that what it was? Yeah. Okay, and then later they acquired. It was the Alfa Romeo firm that was controlled by the government. Is that what it was? Yeah. And let's see. God, I used to know the history on that. And then um, hmm? 
think it all got very convoluted, and I think Ferrari have basically... Well, I think Ferrari have come out as such a strong force now, and I think they own Maserati now. Do they? I'm fairly certain they well, do. I don't know, because all the new Marari, uh, Maseratis have uh, Ferrari engines in them. Yeah. It's easy, isn't it? So, yeah, so I guess. And then, uh, I don't know. It's kind of like here in the United States. You know, one minute we have Chrysler, and one minute we don't, and then we have General <laughs> Motors, and then we're not sure what the deal is with them, and Ford's the only mainstay, and... You know, I, I don't know. You know, the whole car industry is just in a in a turmoil right now, and it's all corporate, and it's you know, it's global. I mean, I, it, that's right, it's global. I mean, it's like look at look at BMW. They got yep. facilities in the United States. They got plants in Europe. They got plants in South Africa. They got. Did, did you know they're owned by a family as well? Yeah, the Quantum family. That's it. Owns yeah. BMW. Uh-huh. Yeah. And uh, they they were in big trouble back in the. You know, it's funny the Isetta. Yes. Okay, BMW Isetta and BMW. And Isetta, it was ESO at the time. Remember, right. they made tractors yeah. and heaters yeah. and stuff like that. They got together. I had an ESO Griffo. You had an ESO Griffo? Yeah, beautiful okay. car, yeah. Well, they, well Piero. With a Chevy li- engine. With a Chevy engine. Yeah. Piero lives in He's, Sarasota. That's right. Yeah, he does. And uh, so we need to get him on the air one day. He can tell us a little history. Oof, now, he was an engineer, that. correct? I believe he was, yes. And didn't they make their, they made, their company made fridges, didn't they? Refrigerators, tractors, or something. Yeah. But anyway, no, so they, Lamborghini made tractors. Oh, Lamborghini made That's the tractors. Right. That's yeah. what it was. So, so ESO and BMW got together. Yes. And they put the little motor, the motorcycle engine in the Isetta, yep. which is now a very valuable and very sought-after yep. car. Have you, have you ever thought about the most ridiculous thing about the Isetta? No. Well, you had to get out by a, it was a little three-wheeler car, for those of you who don't know, with a sunroof. And the... Only way, they could, they called them a bubble car in Britain. Mm-hmm. I don't know what they're called here. Well, they have the front door that opens that, out. That's right. They have the front door that opens out. Mm-hmm. But they didn't have a reverse gear, which was a way of getting around the taxation. So, oh, interesting. Yep. So if you drove your eyes setter into a garage and you went a bit too far forward, mm-hmm. well, you were stuck, weren't you? you so were, they, oh, that's right. That was, that was why they put a little sunroof in. I'm serious about this. So you could get out. Yeah. Or push yourself away from the wall. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. So how many books have you written now? Um, that, I think it's 14. Okay, so you've done the ones on the Lolas, you've yeah. done the ones on the Porsches. What other books yeah. have you written? Um, umpteen reruns, and um, I wrote a book on Ferrari 250 GTs because I love them. And, uh, God, it's terrible. Oh, I wrote a big double tome thing on um, – <laughs> <laughs> Group C and GTP cars, because mm-hmm. um, I always like those as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Porsche 930s and 935s. And so when you write these books, how mm-hmm. and then you read them? And I've run you, out now. And you, okay. <laughs> now, you, do you do revised versions? As you go, as I, time goes on, you, yeah. you acquire more information, you find out more stuff, and then you revise the books, correct? That's right. But I think we've come to a stage now whereby the Internet has become so powerful that it isn't actually worthwhile producing the books in operated form. Mm, I really do think we've come to a crossroads because car books and all special interest books are necessarily a low volume thing. Mm-hmm. And so these days the internet is just so huge and people just get the information they want off the internet and they right. don't bother to buy the books. So I think that is I think we're reaching a stage where a lot of specialist books are gonna bite the dust because because people won't buy them. The other reason people buy books, I think, is for very nice, pretty pictures. And those sort of books, I think, will survive. Okay, like in your books here, I'm looking at this, and you got some Lolas. Yeah. got some open cars here. 
That's a stunning car. Matter of fact, uh, Archie Urcioli, he that, raced. That's his car. That's his car? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, that car looked very familiar. And uh, he's out of Sarasota. We need to get him on the air one time. Mm-hmm. And um, But, yeah, I know when I do appraisals, I used to have to go. I couldn't find the stuff at the library, so I'd have to yeah. go to Barnes & Noble someplace like that. And yep. often I found myself acquiring the books, yeah. which if they were really good books and they had a lot of good information and reference material, which helped me, aided me in, in my, my research and my ability to, to do the appraisals, um, that was a good source. But like you said, now with the Internet, yep. um, and on the Internet, you really don't find a lot of good pictures. And so, hence, you're saying, let's uh, if we make these nice books with cute, short descriptions and beautiful pictures, <laughs> people will buy the books. I think, I think that's the only way to go. Uh-huh. And now we're going to run into the, also the Kindle thing that's coming up as well. I wonder how that's going to affect. What's that? Well, you know, the computerized book. All right. And now, now people have got computerized book, and Amazon are saying they're selling more Kindles than they're actually selling books. Oh, no kidding! Yeah, so that's going to take us all down a different path as well. Uh, hey, I got to mention a few more sponsors here real quick. Um, Magnolia Valley Golf Club in Newport Ritchie, seven two seven eight four seven two three four two. Call my friend Pete for tea times. Check out their leagues, their specials, and also their beautiful pro shop. they got a ton of inventory in there. And also, hang out there at the sports bar on weekends. You can go there, you can eat, drink, and watch all the games. So give them a call if they're at Magnolia Valley Golf Club in Newport Ritchie at 727-847-2342. That's uh, 727-847-2342. And then I want to say, mention, Lee, you know it's uh, Wednesday night, and I get very munchy, hungry after the game, after the, uh, after the game, after the show tonight. So, you know. And I got a I got a hankering for barbecue right now. <laughs> so my friends out the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, seven two seven five zero one ninety ninety. They have chicken, ribs, pork, beef, and combos, beans, salads, and desserts. And so next time you're down that way in Largo, go visit my friends Corey, Kurt, and Jed. And that's the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, six hundred West Bay Drive. They got the, I mean, they got some real smoking food down there. So uh, their number is 727-501-9090. That's the Rib Shack Barbecue. Oh, yeah. And be sure and check out their barbecue sauce. So, hey, how are we doing on time? We got about four minutes. Four minutes. All right. Well, that takes care of all our sponsors. So now you and I could just sit there and talk about cars. Arrested. So what, you went to the auction at Monterey, right? Went to the auctions at Monterey, yes. Bonhams, RM, and Goodings. And there were some others there, Rousseau and Steel, that I didn't get round to. Um, but it was the usual cram to the rafters with people. People seem to be spending money like it's going out of fashion. What kind of numbers? Uh, they sold, the, the auction sold $168 million worth of cars. Which auction was this? Or was this all oh, that, of them that was all of them. All together. of them total. So there was yeah. Goodings, there was RM, yeah, Russo was there, right? Russo and Steel, yeah. And, uh, I think it was a Meekum. And a Meekum auction? Yeah. Uh, yep, that's right. Um, and I just I just went for a sampling of all of them. And I just thought I'd, that there was one auction that I started with, which was Bonhams on Thursday. And they were selling off a Porsche collection of the late Michael Malfitano. And what I couldn't believe was they, they, they had a bunch of Porsche spares that came up first of all in the morning. And a pair of front, just a pair of front suspension pieces off a Porsche 917. A pair of front suspension, yeah. piece, suspension pieces. Yeah, which were valued, right? They were valued in the, in the brochure from 800 to $1,200, sold for $30,000. That's mind Somebody must have had a car that needed those parts, had to be vintage correct, and they probably weren't available. But you could make them for half the price. I, I just don't – it's things like that that leave me just stunned at the money. Well, you know spent. what it is, is that um, sometimes – and I've seen this, and it boggles my mind too – but what it is, it gives you bragging rights to say that you have the original pieces that came off 
so-and-so's car. I'm sure you're absolutely right. And, and that's what it is. And that has a premium. Yeah. You know? That's <laughs> like uh, if you're, you know, it's, it's a pedigree. Yeah. I don't know how, how else to describe it, but that's what it is. I, I, I know you're right, but it still leaves me just gasping. It's mind-boggling. Yep. So the auctions were great. The, um, the, the racing was good. They went to the Pebble Beach Concours on the Sunday. Um, for, so there were all these wonderful cars. And for me, the highlight of the Pebble Beach auction was they had a Burt Munro's Indian motorbike there. Oh, no kidding. Yes, the world's fastest Indian. So what year was that, been? It was a 1923 Indian that he steadily modified over the years, made his own pistons, everything like that. And Interesting. He finally got it up to nearly 200 miles an hour at Daytona. At, uh, Bonneville? Bonneville, yeah. No kidding. Yeah, that's a brave man. I'm not real familiar with that bike. I've heard that name before, mm. but uh, that's interesting. He was a guy who just was, he was a guy who just devoted himself to improving his Indian motorbike. And he, he, he made his way across the... Uh, he made his way from Austria, from sorry, from New Zealand to America, working on a boat. Bought his bike and went to Bonneville and said, "Hello, and I'd raced. Like, I'd like to race." Hmm. Well, John, we're just about out of time. You know, it's just the show always goes too fast, but you'll yeah. definitely come on again, right? I will because you're me. just. I, I like having you on. You're a really great guest. You're very informative. Uh, we'll talk more about racing and uh, Lee. What do we got? We got about a minute yet? Okay, we're good. But I, can, uh, I can't come back because you've had the whole life now. Well, no, there's always more and more to talk about. You know, you're going to go to more races, more shows, more stuff, and I, I need you to be my guy out there to tell me about this stuff. Okay. So you're going to be the guy that goes out there. If, I mean, obviously, we'll cross paths because I'll go to some of the races. But uh, you'll definitely come back, right, John? Yes, I will. All thank right. You well, I want to thank it. you for coming on the show. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Okay. We chased our pleasures here. 